This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. I'm so grateful you're here today. I am hoping that this podcast has brought you a little bit of community and a little bit of support in your parenting journey, wherever you are in that. This podcast is part of the Sandy Boy Productions Podcast Network, so make sure you go check out our website, sandyboyproductions.com, to learn more about the other shows in the network. If you're into running at all, I also host a podcast for runners. It's called All Have Another with Lindsay Hine. All right, listen, I am so excited about this interview today. Uh, This is episode 75, and my guest is Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie is the New York Times bestselling author of How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to her popular TED Talk. If you haven't checked out that TED Talk, I'm going to link that in the show notes as well as all of her books. So you can check that out at sandyboyproductions.com. Her newest book is coming out. It's called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And that has been called a groundbreakingly frank guide to adulthood. Julie is also the author of a poetry memoir called Real American, which illustrates her experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. She has done some incredible work. Julie worked at Stanford University as the Dean of Freshmen for over a decade, and she noticed a startling rise in parental involvement in students' lives. So that's kind of like in a nutshell where the book, How to Raise an Adult, came from, her experience there, and also her experience as a parent herself. Julie has two children herself. And really what we get into in this conversation is the topic of over-parenting and My goal for this conversation for myself and for the listener, for you all, is that we can work to help our kids be more independent. I think that that is probably the best case scenario for us as their parents and them as they are launched into adulthood here in a few years. So non-judgmental. Listen, we are all on our own path here. We are all coming from different backgrounds, from different experiences in our own childhood, different experiences we've had with our kids that might make it harder to give some more independence. I like to say that I have a pretty free range parenting style, but I also know that one of the reasons I have that ability to be so free rangey with my kids is that I don't have any traumatic experiences that would cause me to not push them in that direction. And so I just want to say, if you are coming from a place where there's been something traumatic happened in your life or your kid's life, and that makes you really nervous, hey, we are here with you and we are here to support you. So this is not a shaming conversation if that is you. I do want to empower you though. I want to empower you to take some steps to giving your kids some independence if that's what you're looking for here. Um, There's a four-step process that Julie walks us through in this episode that I really like. And actually, I used it the other day. Um, I'll give a quick example. My five-year-old wanted to ride his bike home from school by himself. 
Uh, sometimes when he rides his bike, I walk with his little brother and that he gets way ahead of us and makes his way home before we get home. Um, but we, and so I've done that with him several times. Um, and then the other day I was in the car and I brought his bike so he could ride his bike and I would drive home with his brother and I watched him do it. I'm going to watch him do it a couple more times before I'm just like, yep, go, go, uh, go ride your bike home and we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you when you get here. But that's part of the process is watching them do something that is one more step towards independence. Ah, so many good things in this conversation with Julie that I hope are helpful to you. Friends, if you love this particular episode or any of the episodes we're sharing here on the podcast, please share it with your friends on social media or send out a text and and just share it with any parent friends or people helping raise kids that you think might benefit from this podcast. My hope is that we can grow this show. And by doing that, that is just a huge way you can help. So what I'm going to do this week, I we have a, a sponsor for this podcast, Gooder Sunglasses. I love their sunglasses. Uh, you can use the code ANOTHER15, by the way, if you want 15% off. Uh, we're going to give away a pair of Gooder Sunglasses. So what I'm going to do, share this episode on social media or send it as a text message to some friends, take a screenshot and message us on why is everyone yelling Instagram. Send us a quick message with what you did, and we will enter you to win a pair of Gooder sunglasses. That's all you have to do. Share it, take a screenshot, tag us, and let us know that you shared it, whether that's on social media or with your friend group, and we will enter to you to win a pair of Gooder sunglasses. Okay? That's simple, right? I love it. Um, All right, this intro is now entirely too long. Thank you for sticking around. Enjoy my conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Well, today on Why Is Everyone Yelling, we have Julie Lithcott-Hames on the show. Welcome to the show, Julie. Lindsay, thanks so much for having me. So excited to have you on the show. I am, I've just devoured your book, How to Raise an Adult, and have shared that with my community. And I know a lot of our listeners have been working through it as well. So excited to kind of talk you through, talk with you through that. Cool. Thanks so much. Um, Hey, Julie, can you kind of give us a... where your passion for parenting and all that came from? Yeah. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say, Lindsay, is I'm not sure I have a passion for parenting. <laughs> uh, let me just <laughs> I love it. it from the start. I am a parent. I have a 22-year-old son named Sawyer, a 20-year-old daughter named Avery. I adore my kids as any parent does, of course. This book that I've written, How to Raise an Adult, which appears to be about parenting and is in many ways advice for parents, really emanates from my passion for all of us Mm -hmm. to live free and clear, unfettered by the control of others. What I was seeing as a college dean at Stanford University in the later latter part of the 20th century and the first decade and a bit of the 21st century was parents showing up at the college level and behaving as if their college student was still five or eight or 12 or 15. That is asking questions on their behalf, filling out forms on their behalf, arguing with instructors on their behalf, (laughs) getting involved in roommate problems on their behalf. And I was bewildered because I thought, my goodness, these magnificently accomplished young people could be in the Marines 
or serving our nation, our country in another way or working in the workplace. But here they are at a very well-resourced private university and their parents are acting like their offspring are helpless. What the heck is up with that? My concern for what was being done to these young people in the form of very involved, very loving, but overly involved parents is what led me to write this book, How to Raise an Adult. It's my passion for all of us thriving and for young people in particular, having the opportunity to try things and learn and grow and figure themselves out and stumble so that they can learn and be stronger next time. Agency, resilience. These are the themes that run through that book. And so it is a parenting book, but I am not a parenting expert. I'm a former lawyer, former university dean now, who saw a problem that turned out to be parenting. Okay, so when you were the dean, uh, your kids were how old? Well, let's see. I began as dean. um, I was in a number of roles at Stanford. I was dean of freshmen from 2002 to 2012, but I began seeing this problem in 98. So my kids were babies. Sawyer was born in 99. So my kids were kind of zero through 13 as I was in these roles at the university. Okay, so how do you feel like that uh, shaped the way you parented your own kids? Well, so I was hyper aware of a problem in the lives of 18 to 22 year olds. And I was starting to see um, that there was a connection to their childhoods. In other words, it wasn't that parents were just showing up and over parenting for the first time with an 18 year old. I was beginning to appreciate that, no, 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 this is a pattern from childhood that is simply continuing, that parents have fostered a dependence on themselves. Like, I will always be there. I will always handle it. I will always fix it. And when we do that, we buy ourselves a permanent role in our kid's life. We're supposed to do the opposite, continually give our kids more opportunities to learn to do it for themselves and step back and watch as long as it's not a devastating, scary situation. So I think what happened for me, the intersection that allowed me to realize, oh my gosh, they're not just starting this overparenting at 18 was, um, I, be, I I realized when Sawyer was 10, so I'm well into this mindset of like telling other people's, telling other parents, stop overparenting your college kids, stop over, I'm now eating dinner with my 10 and eight year old. I sit down next to Sawyer, who was the 10 year old, and I begin cutting his meat. And that, Lindsay, was my aha moment. It was like Dickens's ghost of Christmas future came to me and said, if you ever want that boy to be independent, <laughs> you best stop cutting his meat. That's when my eyes flew open like, oh, shoot, I get it. You can't let go yeah. of your 18-year-old if you've been cutting the meat of a 10-year-old. Okay, that's when I got it. So my world's collided I thought I knew what I was doing. I was advocating for other kids to have the independence and the opportunities to try and fail and try again. I thought I knew what, you know, how to deal with that. Turns out I was one of those parents myself. And I'm raising my kids in Silicon Valley, which is a hotbed of overparenting. There's a whole lot. So I was simply doing what most parents around me were doing. It looks normal. It looks like you're neglecting your kid if you're not acting like they're concierge. But um, I knew deep inside of me that, these behaviors were problematic. It was almost like I was seeing the future in other people's kids. 
And I wrote this book to try to ward people off the path. Like if you've got somebody younger than 18, like here's your opportunity to retool now so you don't end up with a 20-year-old, a 22-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 29-year-old who can't do anything because you've deprived them of the opportunities in life that would have taught them how to do everything. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, the cutting of the meat thing, it makes me think of teaching my kids how to tie their shoe. I mean, what what that boils down to is my laziness. Like, you know right. what parents want to do. I just want to do it because I we got to go. We got to go. We got to right. go. Right? Yeah. I mean, laziness, you characterize it that way. I would add impatience. Sure. I would add just the busyness of life. Right? But here's the point, Lindsay. Of course you can do it more quickly, yeah. right? Of course you can tie their shoes faster, more neatly, more sure not to untie because you're the grown-up, right? Of course you can stack the dishwasher most efficiently because you've had years of practice. Of course you can do this and that more efficiently, more effectively than a child because you're the grown-up. But our job as parents is to lovingly teach these young to be able to do for themselves. They're not going to be perfect the first time or the 10th time. But if we deprive them of the first and the 10th and the 50th time to try, they will never know how to do it. And this is why we're seeing so many young people, chronologically adult, who don't know how to do things and have a lot of fear about their ability to do things. That fear comes from the fact that we've so curated and managed their environment that they really are quite helpless. Yeah. You know, I as I read through your book and as I'm thinking through this, uh, parents doing everything, chauffeuring around, um, I'm wondering in your research, did you find like you mentioned Silicon Valley, like regional and obviously more affluent communities who have the ability and the capacity to do for their kids all these things. You know what I mean? Did you see that difference in the different parts of the country? So everything that I'm talking about is really observational when it comes to helicopter parenting. Nobody's done a study of where are they. Um, But I will tell you that in my observations, it is most definitely linked to wealth. Mm -hmm. And here's why, I think. A parent has to have time on their hands Mm -hmm. in order to drop everything and rescue their kids with a forgotten backpack or forgotten sporting equipment, you know? The ability to drop everything and serve your child is a function of wealth. If you are a working class family, if you're working two and three um, jobs just to pay rent, your boss won't let you drop everything to go drive something to your kids. So it's the privileged kids who get overserved. I saw it in every ethnic group. Um, You know, I, I make that point because some people think, well, the tiger parents, those who are really hell-bent on a child becoming a doctor, for example, to just use a very stereotypical example, they think it's the tiger parents that that means Chinese Americans. I'm here to tell you I have seen that behavior across every racial and ethnic group. Um, And so it's definitely a a wealth, um, you know, I I think you've got to be at least middle class or above Mm -hmm. to have time and the the money uh, to curate your kids every moment. In terms of where across the country, what I can tell you, Lindsay, is I've been everywhere with this book. How to Raise an Adult has been out uh, for almost seven years, and I've had the great privilege 
of going to community after community to give a talk and listen and ask, answer questions. And I've been to Dallas and I've been to Houston and I've been to Chicagoland and I've been to Ohio and I've been to Seattle and Portland and LA and um, uh, Pennsylvania and New York and Miami and you know, I'm just in Colorado. I mean, I've been to so many places, heartland, coasts, north, south, east, west. Um, I have found parents who laugh in response to the examples I give and cry in response to the examples I give, which is really the tone and tenor of my keynote. I'm trying to I tell stories about what I've done wrong <laughs> that make people laugh at me <laughs> with me. It's my way of saying I'm not pointing a finger at you. I'm saying, look what we're doing. And then let me tell you some of the more painful stories from my own life to perhaps open you up to some of the painful moments that are going on in your family life. And you can know I'm right here with you. You're not alone. Oh, but we need to fix things because we're harming our kids. Yeah. You know, sometimes I feel that I might be judged for my free range parenting tendencies. You know, I have four kids and I let them kind of roam around at a pretty young age. Um, I actually, I'll give you one example. Um, well, we live in more of a, it feels more suburby now where we live. We did live in the city in Indianapolis in a, in a city neighborhood. And um, I, we knew our neighbors, which I want to know my neighbors. I want to know yeah. all my neighbors, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and our best friends lived about 10 houses down. So I would let my five-year-old come to and from. I felt like he, the one street he crossed had a stop sign and I just, I felt comfortable with it. We'd, we'd done that walk a bunch of times. And um, I actually had the police called on me one time because oh, someone gosh. saw him walking yeah. home by himself. He was shirtless. It was summer. <laughs> like, you know, he was just being a kid in summer. But, you know, my friend and I had a, you know, a Lewis is on his way kind of situation. And um, wow. I thought about it. And the woman who called the police, she was from outside of the neighborhood. I think she was catching the bus or something. Um, but I thought, you know, what's really cool is that all of my neighbors, we actually all know each other. And those neighbors know, oh, that's Lewis. He's walking home from school. Um, but it just really like ever since that happened, I thought people really aren't letting their kids just free roam, roam like I do. Yeah. Um, Lindsay, I love that example. I'm a Gen Xer. I think I'm, you know, a generation older than you just by the sound of your kids ages and the look on your face. Right. You're an older millennial, I yeah, think. Totally. Um, you're describing a Gen X childhood, which is why I'm making this point where all of what you just described was quite normal. Um and uh, we've become safety mongers, we've become safetyists, we've become everything is dangerous and every child must therefore be under constant watch of parents. And I think those chickens are going to come home to roost. We're going to see the psychological harm that accrues in a child when they've been micromanaged and watched their entire lives as if they're incarcerated people uh, or in a psychiatric facility. I mean, that's what this constant surveillance is going to lead to. Mark my words. Um, I am, like you, a fan of Lenore Skenazi's work, mm. um, Free Range Kids. She's got an amazing nonprofit, LetGrow.org, uh, which is challenging this safetyism to the extent it embeds itself in local policy. So they're working with law enforcement. They're working with legislators at the state level to pass bills related to, a, you know, a child is allowed to be 
alone at above a certain age, not 12, but, you know, eight, right? A child is allowed to be walking the sidewalks and in a park. Um, They're really trying to combat this drastic overreach uh, with, uh, with local ordinances and, and statewide laws, which I really applaud. And this is rooted in what's right for children developmentally. Children need freedom. They need to be able to play freely. They're not meant to be watched over uh, um, as if they're doing something wrong or if, if fear, if threats are constantly uh, present. So I, I applaud what you're doing. I'm sorry you had the police called on you. How did you react? How did you cope with that? How did you narrate it to your kids? Um, well, I told him he wasn't doing anything wrong because he really was just walking and he was uncomfortably walking next to this woman. Well, my first thought was, why didn't that woman just see if he was could get into his house okay? Right? Right. And just right. maybe, you know, like, I get it. It probably looked a little funny. I talked to the police officer. He kind of made an offhanded comment like it was a little dangerous in our neighborhood for him to be out. But I kind of thought, do you live in this neighborhood, policeman? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know right. that you it is dangerous. I know my neighbors. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I just told him it was totally OK. And to let our neighbor know, like when you're going home, you know, let her know, let me know. And it ended up being a non-issue. Good. Really? But yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I love your, you know, how you grew up. You said like, oh, find where the bikes are. That's where the kids go. I mean, that is how our neighborhood is now. And I feel so much freedom and like, I don't have to text the parent and be like, can so-and-so come play? Just go see if they're home. Right. And I love your point too. Then if they do that, they have to talk to the parent. If right. they have to knock on the door, they right. have to use their verbal skills to say, hey, right. Mrs. Smith. So-and-so. Yeah. Right. Manners, uh, eye contact to the extent they're able, um, a little bit out of their comfort zone. I mean, I think when I was little, of course, there were no cell phones. If I wanted to call my friend Lindsay up on the phone, it was a phone in my parents' house, you know, in our house attached to a cord. Maybe I could stretch the cord and have some privacy by stretching it far enough to go into my room or the bathroom, right? But whomever answered was a complete unknown. So likely it was Lindsay's mom or dad or big brother. And I would have to say, hello, this is Julie Lithcott. May I please speak to Lindsay? And I would hear, Lindsay, <laughs> Julie's on the phone. And Lindsay, right? You had to go through most often you someone other than your friend would pick up the phone. So we had to go through the uncomfortable act of having to talk to so-and-so's family member. It was just normal for us. And I think it helped us feel far less afraid at just picking up the phone and calling. Today's kids are often quite afraid to make phone calls. They know the phone is a way to find friends, but the phone being used to call a store to ask, Mm. do you carry this or to make a medical appointment, they feel really scared. And I think it's just, frankly, they haven't had enough practice having a stranger at the other end of the phone. Can we bring back the landline? <laughs> I know. You know, I mean, that's I'm the thinking, other thing. Yeah, like, yeah. <clears throat> if you hold off on your kids having cell phones, then the yeah. moms are texting or the dads are texting or whatever, and you just want your kid to communicate. I have actually thought hard about that, about getting really? a landline. Nice. Am I the only one in 2022? I, I think so. I think you may be <laughs> the only one. Maybe the phone company will be happy to hear you say this, though. Yeah, I agree. Bring back the landline or figure out what's today's solution so that yeah. kids have to 
interact with grownups and authority figures and so on. I mean, I think we can have our kids practice these tough conversations uh, by saying, hey, um, uh, I'd, I'd like to go to this restaurant. Of course, it's also easy with apps, but, you know, we can make it a little extra hard and say, you know what, I think I'd like to go to this restaurant tonight, take the family out. Will you call them and see if they have room for six? What a great idea. <laughs> right? Yeah. And just have your kid look at you and be like, what? And just like, yeah. And then we have to walk away. Yeah. We have to smile and walk away or else our own neurotic tendencies will be telling the kid precisely what to say. Like the only way they learn is by doing the same with a store, go into a grocery store and say to your eight year old, you know what I need to find. And you of course know exactly where everything is. Remember, cause you're the grown up, right? But you have to say to your kid, could you help me find the tuna? You know, I think it's on aisle this or this and have them walk down the aisle and look for it and come back to you. Like I found it. You'd be like, terrific. Go get three more, you know? Right. And if they don't know, they can go up to the clerk and say, excuse me, I'm looking for the tuna. Could you help me find it? Right. There are all kinds of life lessons embedded in just letting your child roam a little bit more freely at a grocery store. Hey friends, a quick break to share with you about a new product, a new sponsor for this podcast that I am loving Portland bee balm beyond the amazing quality of their balm. Portland Bee Balm is committed to creating sustainable products, which is hugely important to me. They are members of 1% for the Planet, which means they donate 1% of revenue to organizations tackling our planet's most pressing environmental issues. This is so cool. Products that are useful, natural, and add value to people's lives and the world. Portland Bee Balm provides the best hydration for your lips with clean and simple ingredients. Since I put balm on my lips multiple times throughout the day, it is so important to me that the products I'm using are clean and effective. Portland Bee Balm has so many different varieties of scents, but my favorite is the Organ Mint. The ingredients they source and the packaging they use all support health and well-being to the environment and community. So awesome! Friends, go to portlandbeebalm.com and use the code SANDYBOY for 20% off your first order. All right, back to the show. I'm curious your thoughts on like structure versus, I don't even want to say free play because as they get older, it's a little bit different. But, you know, you're someone coming from Stanford, went to Stanford, was a dean, you know, was a corporate lawyer, very successful. Um, we have so much structure in our kids' childhood these days because we want them to get into the college and be hardworking and all these things. What? How do we strike a balance, though? Because I'm, I'm, I've been very much not wanting to overschedule my kids, and my kids get a ton of free play. But we're getting my oldest is nine, and it's like you know things are getting a little more structured. You want yeah. to give them those opportunities, but you don't want to overstructure. Where do we find a balance? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves, what do we mean by those opportunities? There are a handful of colleges and universities like the one I worked at and went to that appear to require a childhood stacked to the hilt with activities and perfect grades and scores. And I am going to say loudly, do not let what some college seems to want determine how you raise your kids, okay? If your kid is naturally inclined toward mm taking the hardest classes and studying constantly and doing 
five activities. That's who your kid is. That's what they want. Great. Support that kid and doing what they want. But don't force a kid down that path if it doesn't seem to be who they are. Okay. Mm-hmm. I am clear. There are 3,000 four-year colleges in the United States, roughly speaking. Not to say everyone has to go to a four-year school or college at all. But if a four, if a bachelor's degree is what your kid wants, um, what you expect for your family, um, there are 3,000 options, not 20. Okay. The top 5% of 3,000 is 150 schools. And most of those 150 are not requiring a stack to the hilt with activities, perfectionist childhood, okay? So let me just, that's why I'm pushing back on those opportunities. My point is college will be there. Have confidence that the right college will be there for your kid. Also have confidence that when your child is getting enough sleep, has downtime slash free time slash play time, is eating family dinners, is taking care of business with their homework, and maybe has an activity or two. That's a kind of balanced life that is going to uh, preserve your kid's mental wellness. So they are more likely to get through this childhood healthy, whole, happy, and go on to wherever they go after high school, well-equipped with their mental health intact to thrive wherever they go. So I would say you're doing the right thing, right? Listen to your kid. If your nine-year-old's ready to try a new activity, great. Let's try it. Here are our family expectations about when we start something, we stick with it. Like whatever your, I don't know what your family values are. I'm just throwing out an example. Um, Don't let the college industrial, the college admissions industrial complex make you switch up from this amazing, healthy loving, free childhood to like, okay, but now you have to buckle down because you've got to get into college, okay? Your kids are going to be delightful on the page. The stories they're going to be able to tell when they write college essays Mm. about this childhood, about their responsibilities they've been given and opportunities are going to blow these other kids who've been treated like little robots and pushed through these activities who have no idea who they are, what they want, your kids' essays are going to be authentic and vibrant and interesting. That's going to serve them in the process. The final thing I'll say is the biggest structure kids need, I believe, and remember, I'm not a parenting expert. I'm a lawyer turned dean who wrote a book on a problem with parenting. What I learned is chores. Mm. Chores are the greatest predictor of professional success in life, according to a huge study that was done. I talk about this in my TED Talk. Okay, why? Because chores build a mindset of, I have to pitch in. It's not just about me and my needs. I have to pitch in. I am part of a group called a family, I'm part, which becomes I'm part of a group called a workplace or a set of roommates that I have, right? I have to pitch in and help. I have to roll up my sleeves and help. I have to do some unpleasant tasks to contribute to this whole place functioning. It also, as Michaeline Duclef has written in her beautiful book, Hunt, Gather, Parent, it gives them a sense of belonging to the family. Mm. Like, I am responsible for bringing the bins in. I am responsible for taking the recycling out. I am responsible for putting the groceries away. That gives them, it's not cruel. It gives them a sense of belonging to the family. As long as that's not the authoritarian, like the kids have to just slog through the muck and dirt of life while the parents are mean and cruel, like none of us is going to do that, we hope, right? You're inviting your kids to belong to the family by contributing, 
by being responsible, being held accountable, they derive actual psychological satisfaction from helping out. Um, So that's the structure that I think all of us need to be offering our kids. Yeah. And then you won't, they won't be the a-hole roommate who uh, doesn't, (laughs) doesn't clean the toilet or doesn't, doesn't restock the toilet paper. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I love those concepts. Can you talk about uh, the four method, like yeah. to being able kids being able to do things on their own? Yeah. So um, it's funny when I wrote my book, How to Raise an Adult, I'd gotten a book deal, and then I I wrote my manuscript, and my publisher was like, "Okay, you've told us what the problem is with helicopter parenting. You've told us why we are this way. You've told us why it's problematic, like the various harms, but you haven't told us what to do differently." Right. And I said, "Who am I to tell anybody how to do things differently?" She's like, "You're precisely the person. That's why we gave you this book deal." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, great!" So I had to go out and really pull in other people's uh, research and fashion my own conclusions. So the four-step method. Um, uh, that that I name is uh, first you do it for them, then you do it with them, then you watch them do it, and then they can do it completely independently. And it applies to all kids, assuming they don't have significant special needs. It applies to all kids around all skills. Let me give one example. Uh, let's say we're making a grilled cheese sandwich on the stove. Your kid is four. Uh, they're sitting somewhere playing in the family room while you make the grilled cheese sandwich. That's step one. You are doing it for them. You will call them to lunch. Okay. Maybe now they're five though. And they're, or, you know, I'm, I'm sort of arbitrarily picking ages, but let's, let's say the first kid was two. Okay. Okay. Made a two year old, a grilled cheese sandwich. Step two, you do it with them. You invite your four or five-year-old to stand up at that stool that comes up to the counter so that they can be strapped in by the counter height. And you say, hey, kiddo, we're going to make lunch today. It's grilled cheese sandwiches. And um, I'd like your help. And they'll be excited because little ones love to help. And you're going to pull out the pieces that they can do. Like maybe you're going to have them take the bread out of the ba- bread bag and put the, peel the slices of cheese and put it down. You're going to cut, if there's tomato, you're going to cut the tomato. They're too young to cut a tomato. You know, you're going to be the one at the stove. Okay. But you're talking to them like, here's how we do it. And, you know, every family assembles their grilled cheese differently. But you're going to narrate in a cheerful teaching voice to what we're doing. You're going to tell them that you need their help. They're going to do it. You're going to be grateful. Okay. They're going to feel belonging. You do that for a couple years, maybe step three with that kid is, Hey kid, maybe they're now eight. It's time for you to learn how to use this stove. We're going to make that grilled cheese sandwich, but this time you're going to do the tasks I used to do. Right. So I'm going to assemble. How about I assemble the the bread and cheese and you be the one to cook it. And I'm still, you know, you're teaching them how to turn on the stove. If it's gas, if it's electric, how far to stand away, like how to be safe. Right. And you're there for the just in case. Step three is to make sure they don't burn the house down. Okay. If they accidentally touch a hot flame, that's a great life lesson. Right. Ouch. That's how they learn. Step four is you're in the family room. They make the sandwich start to finish. And for both of you, you know, they're doing it without you. So those are the steps. And that, you know, I think about that with the crossing the street thing too, because that, that I think is, is the kind of thing that scares parents, right? Right. When do we know? How do we know? I mean, I think a lot of that is just like your instincts, right? You Have you taught it? I have a 12 year old who can't cross the street. There (laughs) are people who've said to me, I would never let my 17 year old take the subway. (laughs) 
And I was like, great. What's your long-term strategy? <laughs> what's the plan here in two years when he's gone? Exactly. Because then you have a, a young adult who's afraid and you've made him that way. Yeah. You've taught them that you are so afraid that they should be afraid. They are underdeveloped, less skilled than they should be. You have harmed them. You thought you were protecting them and your protection was suffocating them. I'm not saying let your three-year-old cross the street in downtown Manhattan without <laughs> you, okay? Right? Every neighborhood is different. You've just beautifully described your neighborhood in Indiana, Indianapolis that you moved from, right? Every street is different. Every neighborhood is different. But the point is our mentality, Lindsay, has to be, I'll be dead one day. I need to make sure my kids can cross the street and make a sandwich and tie their shoes and wipe their behinds. People are bathing their kids too long tying their shoes too long. I had a parent tell me, you know what, Julie, I love that story about you cutting Sawyer's meat when he was 10. And I was like, yeah, that was really problematic. She's like, yeah, I'm cutting my 16 year old's meat. <laughs> and I just looked at her and she laughed. And I said, you know what, you got to stop. She's like, I know, but it's just easier. And I was like, that's when I knew that she was for real. I thought she was kind of joking. Yeah. But she said that and I was like, okay, so here's what's going to happen. He's going to be with friends or he's going to be in the workplace. I said, what does he do when he when you don't cut it? She says he just puts a fork in the middle of the chicken and pulls the whole thing up to his mouth like Fred Flintstone. And I said, OK, he's going to be ashamed. He's going to be shamed or humiliated in public. And that's going to be on you. Yeah. So just know that's coming. Hey friends, a quick break here to thank Prevenex for supporting this episode of the podcast. If you are in the market for the best multivitamin around for yourself and your family, they have great kids vitamins as well. You know you're getting a clean and effective product when you use Prevenex. They also have an Immune Health Plus product out that they have worked on for over two years, okay? This is a great product. I've been using it every single day. It supports your immune system, clinically formulated to enhance your immune system's ability to adapt and react to your unique immune system needs. What it does is it primes immune cells to spring into action and respond rapidly to various threats at the precise moment they're needed. Filled with so many great immune ingredients and you 100% should go check out this product. What I love about Prevenex, if you are not satisfied, they give you your money back, okay? So if you have not shopped with Prevenex before, you can use the code Lindsay15, that's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-1-5. That'll get you 15% off your order of any of their products. They have a great protein powder that's vegan. I use it almost every single day. My kids use it in their smoothies. It's delicious. They have vanilla and chocolate, multivitamins, and then this new Immune Health Plus product is just legit. So you can use the code Lindsay15 for 15% off. And then if you've already used that code and you're like, ah, I want to try the Immune Health Plus, but I want the discount. You can use the code Immunity15 and you can get 15% off uh, that product there. Uh, all right, friends, check it out. Prevenex.com. Use the code Lindsay15 or Immunity15 for 15% off that Immune Health Plus. Links to all that will be in the show notes at SandyBoyProductions.com. Alrighty, back to the show. Let's talk about like expectations with ages, right? So the ultimate goal is we raise children who are independent, 
So we're not cutting their meat when they're 12 or 16 or 10. Right. Uh, they leave the home and, you know, go to college. Like you, you mentioned the military, go work full time, whatever it is. Right. right. What are like, do you have like benchmarks for an 18 year old? I kind of do actually. Um, in, so I've just written a new book. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. How, how to be an adult. This is my response. If how to raise an adult was really for adults to, to parents like back off and, and prepare your teacher kid rather than do everything for them. I do have in that book a checklist of things 18-year-olds are supposed to be able to do. And it's pretty simple. It's like um, get themselves up, get themselves dressed and washed and fed, um, keep track of their belongings and their deadlines, um, interact with the strangers they meet on their path, advocate for their own needs to authority figures, make their way around town, right? Um, these sound just sort of obvious, but when a child has been overhandled, the, all of the things I've just mentioned have been handled by parents. And so they really don't know how. This new book, Your Turn, is really in response. I mean, it's for anyone struggling with adulting, but those who have articulated a concern about, I don't know if I can adult, I don't know if I want to adult, adulting is hard. There are folks in your generation, many of whom were overmanaged. And who find themselves chronologically adult, but like, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. You know, I, I met a young person whose dad always filled the car with gas. Mm. And she ran out of gas one day because she'd never, even though she had a driver's license and been driving for years, daddy had always just taken care of that. Lovingly intended, she didn't know how to pump gas. And um, ran out of gas, or maybe this, I'm misremembering the story. I think the story was actually pulled into a gas station and neither she nor her friend knew how to, pump, knew how to gas. pump the gas and they both looked at each other like I've never done it and it's irresponsible if you're going to drive a motor vehicle you got to know how to gas it up it's if it's not an electric I mean you know so it's it's um yeah um so I I my new my newest book is really this empathetic I'm not criticizing them at all anyone struggling I don't criticize them it's like something in your environment deprived you of the natural opportunity throughout the course of childhood to learn so many things and to feel confident in your own ability to try. And um, and so that's what this new book is in response to. Yeah. And I mean, I think as parents, whether we're over managing or not, what do we want? We want our kids to flourish. We want them to do what they love and we want them to work hard, right? right. Yeah. I, th I think that one of my... I don't know if fear is probably not the, that's probably too strong of a word, but like if I don't structure things enough or I don't have kids in sports enough or whatever, that they will miss out on that hardworking piece. Like am I letting my kids just free play all too much? Is that mm -hmm. a thing? It's a good question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I love I, that. So I'll, I'll try to opine though. Um, what I've learned from psychologists is that we're kind of innately wired to want to work. Mm. Uh, we're not inherently lazy as beings. We derive psychological satisfaction from solving problems, from sweating and working and creating and accomplishing. And um, um, so we shouldn't fear that kind of left to their own devices. Kids will just necessarily be lazy. I mean, some some might. I think what we want to be doing is inspiring them by being hard workers ourselves, right? So, so that they see the adults whom they respect. Like they, our kids respect us. It may not seem like it always, <laughs> but they do. They look up to us. And so to see us come in and say like, wow, 
I worked really hard on that. I really solved that problem. I'm proud of myself. Or, or that was really hard. Boy, I need a break. You know, they need to see that the adults around them work hard. They need to hear us talking about at the dinner table. You know, I had this going on today and here's how I handled it. And what do y'all think? Maybe I could have handled it better. Like they need, they're trying to become, you know, capable grownups and we are their biggest role model. So I would say work hard yourself, mm. which helps inspire kids to do it. Like if you want your kids to be athletes, be an athlete, right? If you want your kids to be runners, be a runner. Um, of course you can't make your kid a runner, but you can inspire them around what running feels like for you. And, um, maybe they'll go in that direction or maybe they'll find their own thing. My daughter is a dancer. None of us are dancers, but you know, we exposed her to the nutcracker early on. She told her daddy at three, I want to do that. You know, it became a dance class, which became a life of being a dancer. And she's 20 now and figuring out how to incorporate, how to, how to work in the arts, which is a beautiful thing to see. And I point out that example because I didn't accept the fact that my daughter was an artist for the first half of her life. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. You know, mm. art. little side thing because I was so bought into this mentality of, but wait a minute, what about, you know, the academic subjects? And because I was working with other people's kids as a dean, I began to appreciate, wait a minute, these kids being forced to be bankers, forced to be engineers, forced to be doctors, whatever, when they really want to be this, that, and the other. I'm doing that to my own daughter. I need to stop. Uh, okay, so from the unique perspective of parent and working in admissions, it's like your dream scenario of, of, a, of a kid coming to you with independence. I mean, you want support of parents, but like what's the dream situation? So let me clarify, I was never in admissions. Oh, okay. I was not the admissions dean. I was the dean of freshmen. freshmen. That's why yeah, I had that, admissions in my head. Freshmen. I know a lot of people make that mistake. Um, I just want to be clear because that's someone else's job and a big job. Totally. Um, I worked with them once they came to the university. Sure. My dream, and frankly, I asked the dean of admissions, would you please incorporate interviews into the admission process? Because I'd like to know there's a human being, not a robot behind all of these test scores. Mm. Okay. So it's... Um, I'm looking for, do they have agency, which is I can do things, not I can be president of the whatever, but I am capable of setting a plan, executing, seeing how it goes, learning from it, iterating, keeping on going. Do they have resilience? That is, I can cope when things go badly because things will go badly in life because life is largely out of our control. And finally, do they have good character or do they think that life is all about their needs. Agency, resilience, and character. I call that the arc, A-R-C, of becoming a successful, happy adult. If you leave home with those three things, you will thrive wherever you go. That's so good. Um, yeah, and there's a problem with parents helping too much with homework. Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, that's one of the giggles that I get when I do my keynote around the nation. Um, I will say, I usually say, I just want y'all to know, they didn't invite me here to Raleigh-Durham because <laughs> any of y'all are overparent, are doing your kids' homework. Uh, but people near here are doing their kids' <laughs> They laugh because they know it's happening everywhere. It's the same tie your shoes. I'm going to tie your shoes because I can. Yeah, it's easier. I mean, it's just easier if I do it. But wait a minute. here, And here's why it's, extra problematic when it comes to homework. You're telling your kid's brain, you're telling their psyche, you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. I have to do your homework for you. To meet my expectations and your teacher's expectations, I actually have to do your work for you. 
Imagine what that feels like to a developing mind, right? Not good. Devastating. We wonder why kids today have so many mental health challenges, right? We're robbing them of the chance to be a child who learns by doing how to get better and better and ultimately become someone who can uh, master a concept. I'm going to give a little example. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I'm proud of this. Yeah. Our When we moved to this new neighborhood, our we're about half a mile from the elementary school. And that was my dream. I want to live in a location where my kids can walk or ride their bikes to school. And I do not have to be Same. involved in the process. Same. And I, I feel fortunate that. that like we're in that situation. Yeah. Right. And my my kids were um, six and nine, the two in elementary. And my six-year-old, you know, he's been riding his bike to school to and from since we moved here. And um, he forgot, he got to school and forgot his mask. And they could have given him a mask at school, but he didn't want to do that. So he rode his bike home, got his mask, rode his bike back to school school's doors were shut. He didn't know what to do in that circumstances because there's no, you know, the doors aren't open. So he rode his bike all the way back home. And I wasn't home because I was walking my little boys to school and I got home and he was here waiting for me. But I just was so proud that he was, he was fine to just come back home, go back and come back home. And he was independent enough. And had I not given him the opportunity to ride his bike to school to and from every day, he would have been scared to come home by himself. Absolutely. That's a gorgeous example. It tells me your little one has agency. Look, he's like, I can handle this. It's on me to get my own mask. I will go get it up. The school gates are closed. I don't know what that means. I'm going back home. Yeah. Look at that problem solving. As I said, or as Kelly Corrigan said, actually, when she and I were talking on her podcast, there's nothing more satisfying. There's no greater buzz. I think her it's either she said this or her dad said this. There's no greater buzz than solving your own problem. Yeah. So your six-year-old was there with like, I'm good. I figured this out. I know what to do next. I'm just going to sit here now and wait for mom, right? He figured that out. The school was probably freaking out. Where's the <laughs> six-year-old, right? But I bet they loved the independence, the accountability, the responsibility, the resilience. That kid is always going to be okay. Oh. That kid, right? It's a beautiful example, but I bet 80% of the parents listening are like, oh, my God, what a... What a failure on your part, yeah. right? I can't believe you let, and that's where the narrative of safetyism comes in. Like, oh, I would never, and frankly, a lot of parents derive their sense of self from, oh, I solved it. Yeah, yeah. Right? And that means like, go get some therapy, figure out why your self-esteem is wrapped up in solving your child's every problem instead of your self-esteem being like, I'm a good person. I'm teaching my kids how to be good, smart, capable, strong people. And I'm not setting your water and your mask out every night. Get your right. water and get your right. mask. And you forget your mask. You come back home and get your mask. You know, and the last thing I'll say on that, you know, I have had some pushback because I think that some parents who come from maybe a childhood where their parents were neglectful and weren't there enough, they feel yeah. like they need to overdo it. And so I'm not right. coming from that experience And so I acknowledge that. And I I don't know how you work through that if you did come from that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a valid um, reaction. It's just an overreaction. So if you came from neglect, you want to do the opposite, which is to always be there. What we really want is that more healthy middle ground. 
or put differently, we have to know that the opposite of neglect is love, but love isn't I do everything for my kid. It's I make sure my kid is having every opportunity to learn to do things for themselves. And I'm delighting in them learning more skills and growing ever more confident and competent and capable. You know, Julie, I'm going to do kind of a mental checklist and maybe our listeners can too. I've just like, what are things I'm doing for my kids that they could probably be doing for themselves? I think that that's just a healthy thing to do on a fairly regular-ish basis, right? Absolutely. And um, look, I've I said at the outset, I think um, <clears throat> that I turned out to be overparenting my own kids, right? So I've had to ask my kids, myself, with teenagers and now 20-somethings, okay, what am I doing that's impeding their opportunity to do for themselves? Um, and I had an important moment with my 22-year-old in the pandemic. He was probably 20. Um, early in the pandemic, he was home with us. And he was like, I was making dinner, and he was, but dinner was two hours away. And, and he was making a snack for himself in the toaster oven. And he said, Mom, do I set this at 375 or 400? And I got a little irritated my brain was going, why is a 20 year old? Mm. Like the, the person who knows a 20 year old should not be asking a parent how to cook something was frustrated with him and probably frustrated with me. Like, why doesn't he know? Cause you haven't taught him because you've, you've always micromanaged everything, but I got a little irritated. Just my face was irritable. So I turned away. I got right with myself. I said, what's going on? Oh, you're frustrated. You're always stressed in the kitchen. That's an anxiety you have. And you know, you get a little stressed out, Julie. I know that. Okay. Um, you need to apologize to Sawyer and you need to explain to him the answer. So turn back to Sawyer. And I said, first of all, honey, I'm sorry. I know I get irritable in the kitchen. I get all like worried about everything coming out on time. I got to deal with that. Believe me, I'm doing my, I'm trying to do my work. It's not about you. Number two, uh, what I want you to, and he just looked relieved when mm. I apologized for my own shit showing up. Um, then I said, and here's the answer. There is no answer. <laughs> It's, a, you know, whether it's 375 or 400, you'll only know the answer to that by trying and seeing the results. If you set it at 375 and it needed to be 400, you're going to have to cook it longer. If you set it at 400, it might get a little burned um, if it should have been 375. The only way to know the answer is to try. So I smiled, said that, smiled and turned away. And I'm telling you that story because I think we have to own our own stuff, Right. We have to give our kids room. And sometimes we do need to turn away, like set it and forget it, mm -hmm. say it and move on, right? We're supposed to be empathizing with them and empowering. And if we hover over them, we're going to want to get our fingers in it. Sometimes we have to, when our college students are texting us, like, I just got a flat tire. You're not supposed to solve that. You're supposed to say, oh my gosh, that's so frustrating. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Make sure they're not like in the right, right. something place. But then- you know, let me know how you handled it and put your phone away and walk away from your phone because otherwise you're going to have this energetic need to know like, oh my gosh, my kid has a flat tire. What am I going to do? Nothing. It's not yours. It's her flat tire. Yeah. Man, I called my mom this morning because I thought my son broke his elbow. Maybe I shouldn't have called my mom. I'm serious too. <laughs> well, you were trying to call somebody for advice and it's fine to get advice, <laughs> yeah. right? And guidance. Totally. Right? And she used to work. She was a nurse in the ER exactly. for 20 years. There was a reason. I was like, like can you hey, look at this bend? Can I get your read on this? Yeah. yeah. That's the right thing to do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I feel, you know, when I feel like I call my mom too much is when people are sick in my house. I feel like that's a natural tendency. Call my mom, you know, but um, 
Yeah. You know, I think any of us who has a physician or a nurse uh, or an EMT, um, some kind of healthcare provider yeah. in the family, <clears throat> we would turn to them for their thoughts. Just like if we have an accountant in the family, we're going to say like, can I get your read yeah. on how I'm putting my taxes together? Or if we have a lawyer in the family, that's totally fine. Just we don't ever want to transfer our agency to them. We don't want to feel helpless. We want to be like, let me think this through. What do I think? Let me access an expert, my mom, you know, but also ultimately let me make the decision after I've analyzed it and synthesized it in my brain. I am coming to a conclusion rather than just letting someone else's opinion be what I follow. See, the the biggest takeaway from this conversation I'm getting is the agency. We want yeah. our kids to have agency. We want them to be their own beautiful selves without all these other dynamics pushing their way in like right. you be you you pursue what you want to do and you figure things out on your own right right okay julie yeah. um so julie has three books how to raise an adult which is the book we largely talked about in this podcast she has the new book out which is called your turn how to be an adult correct and then her beautiful memoir Real American as well. So lots of work from Julie that everybody can check out. Uh, Julie, we wrap up with these end of podcast questions with everybody. So just a few kind of okay. rapid fire-ish. Yeah. What's something professionally or personally that you would like to do that you haven't done yet? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Good Lord. You've accomplished a lot. Well, I've, I've, I'm in my third career, law, higher ed administration. Now I write and speak for a living. I love what I do. Um, I, um, I'm trying to get fluent in Spanish and the pandemic has been a great opportunity for me to use Duolingo Spanish. I do a little bit almost every day and I'm learning it and I feel really proud of myself for that. Um, so that's, I would like to be fluent in Spanish. I love that. What's the best, most recent book you've read? Oh my gosh, I'm constantly reading books. So I will say there's this book, Read Until You Understand by Farah Jasmine Griffin, which is um, Read Until You Understand the Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature. She's uh, a literary historian and she's basically woven the language of former slaves like Phyllis Wheatley and Frederick Douglass through uh, um, the activists of the of the abolitionists and the 1960s through to our present moment. In other words, she's tracing the lineage of black rhetoric and thought around around equality and justice and race and self love and all of that. It's this beautiful compendium of of thinkers throughout time, and I just thought it was beautifully written. And you'd learn a tremendous amount as well. Is that a new book? It is. Okay. Yeah, it came out, I think, in the fall. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Um, can you tell everybody just like, I know we have three minutes, two minutes, a blip of your memoir? Yeah. Um, I'm a black and biracial person. I grew up mostly in white spaces. That was the choice of my parents. And that, those experiences were tough. I experienced what we call microaggressions. I experienced outright racism. And I wrote a memoir about, which is a very personal account of these things. Um, so it's really tough little vignettes throughout my life and how they eroded my sense of self and how I was outwardly successful, professionally speaking, by certain standards, but inwardly really just trying to never be called the N-word again 
or never to be mistreated on the basis of my appearance. And and I realized that that was harming me psychologically. And I kind of did the work with some help to overcome that. And so the memoir really chronicles my journey from the innocence of childhood into this deep well of self-loathing and ultimately back to a place of self-love. You know, the one thing I heard you say on, on another podcast interview is that if you would have had a teacher or someone say to you, hey, hey, I'm here for you. Notice that you're a little bit different and said, hey, I can be here for you if you need anything. Should anything go down? Yeah. yeah. I was at an all-white high school in Middleton, Wisconsin, um, 1,200 kids, all white, and me. And um, I wish that one teacher had pulled me to the side and said that. I think it might have helped. I can't know. But I really felt terribly, terribly alone. Um, I think that's something people need to hear, too. That yeah. that. And um, one one more thing on that really quick. I've recently started following a woman and her platform is called Brown Mama Bear. And that is what she is set out to do is to mm. help other women who are raising brown and black children in white spaces. And so if right. anybody is interested in that, go check her out. Yes. I just want to say one other thing about your turn, actually, which um, I just wanted to make clear. I, I said I wrote it for 18 to 35 year olds, which I did. But there are a lot of people in their later 30s and 40s, you know, who are saying and 50s and 60s and 70s who are saying, I feel like you wrote this book for me. So my newest book is on adulting, but it's really on living your best life. Mm. Once you exit childhood, it's making the most and best of the decades to come. So it's it's not just for young adults. It's really for anybody who's feeling like, you know, I could use some retooling. I could use some affirmation. I could use a hand holding my hand as I walk this journey. That's really what that book is. I love that. And we'll link to all of Julie's books in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Julie, last message to leave with our audience. I believe in you. That may sound strange because I don't know you. I'm grateful that you spent this time with me and Lindsay. Whatever came up in your body and your mind as we spoke, notice that. That's yourself telling yourself that topic mattered to you. I'm rooting for all of us to make it. And I truly mean that. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Lindsay. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here. Isn't Julie amazing? I think she is. Uh, go get her book, How to Raise an Adult, and check out her newest book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, as well as her memoir, Real American. Uh, links to all of those books, her TED Talk, Everything we talked about, everything Julie recommended will be in our show notes at sandyboyproductions.com. You can actually just sign up for that on our website. If you go to sandyboyproductions.com and click on why is everyone yelling, there'll be a pop-up that you can sign up for the newsletter. That way the show notes are just delivered to you every week. It's so easy. Uh, don't forget if you share the episode on your social media, tag us, why is everyone yelling on Instagram? Oh, you can tag me, lindsayhine626 on Instagram. Um, or text it to your friends. Uh, take a screenshot of that and send us a message on Instagram and we will put you in or email us if you don't have Instagram. Uh, you can email me, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com and uh, we'll enter you in to win a pair of Gooder sunglasses, okay? I love some Gooder sunglasses. All right, friends, thanks for being here. We have some great episodes coming up in the coming weeks and I'm just grateful that you're here. I hope you found something helpful in this episode. Truly, I do. Have a great rest of your day and we'll see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling?